there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today, we'll be talking about mental health on America's college campuses, new ways of coping with stress and trauma, and the value of mindfulness with my guest, Dr. Rachel Turo. Dr. Turo was born in San Francisco and grew up in the Bay Area. After completing a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Oregon, a clinical internship at the Portland Veterans Affairs Medical Center, and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Dr. Turo worked as a supervising psychologist and research scientist at Rush University Medical Center. After a decade of research and clinical practice centered around the question, what helps people recover from stress and trauma? Dr. Turo's current work addresses how best to help everyone cultivate strategies to manage stress and build new coping and resilient skills. Dr. Turo, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here and thanks for your attention to mental health and well-being. No, we appreciate your time. And for our listeners who couldn't see the the, the intro for the show, uh, Dr. Turo did dance, as I sometimes ask our guests. And so she's, you know, in the top three right now. We'll, we'll get the rankings later on. Uh, and also before we start, you're from the Bay Area. I never asked this before. Are you a sports fan? I'm afraid I'm not. I don't know much about it, but I do enjoy sports once in a while. If I'm in the right kind of social context and other people are watching something, I'll watch it too. That's okay because my listeners know I'm a, a devout and diehard Dallas Cowboys fan and your San Francisco 49ers have knocked them out the last couple of years. So we can stay on the show today. So that's okay. We're all good now. Very kind of you. Thank you. So we can get everyone on the same page as we begin. What is good working definition of mental health or well-being? It's actually a complex question. A lot of times the mental health field treats mental health as if it means an absence of problems. And I think that that's a little bit problematic because people sometimes think that everything has to be perfect or else they're messed up or else they have a problem. But as we know from having bodies, physical health is very complicated. You might feel pretty good, but have one or two challenges in your physical health. And that can be the same thing in mental health. And that's all right. It doesn't mean that things are insurmountable. It's just kind of like being human, like having a body. In terms of well-being, there's an idea now to move away from this idea of just not having mental health difficulties and to think more about flourishing, zest, engagement, enjoyment in life. That means that you're able to function to get your basic tasks taken care of. You know, nobody can do this 100%. We always have things undone that we wish we could get to. But, you know, for the most part, you're kind of able to cope. And then um, a little bit beyond that, ideally, so that sometimes you're actually enjoying life or working towards some goal or, um, you know, having fun. And what are the medical definitions of stress and trauma? Because they aren't the same thing, are they? Well, to be honest, I think they are. I think that it's a matter of degree rather than of kind. And unfortunately, we have psychologists to blame because this sort of seems like it was a turf war that, you know, around the 70s or 80s, people had this idea that stress and trauma were different. 
stress was kind of, you know, not that big a deal. And trauma was this big, horrible thing that happened, like being in combat in Vietnam, which absolutely was horrible. But as the research has advanced, the idea of separating stress and trauma is not sustainable. So for instance, if you take the case of emotional abuse versus sexual abuse and physical abuse, they're all bad, but people make this assumption that sexual and physical abuse are worse when the research evidence shows that actually emotional abuse has sometimes just as serious effects. So you might also take the idea of a divorce and a car accident. Some car accidents are worse than some divorces. Some divorces are worse than some car accidents. So it sort of depends. And this idea that trauma is this special category, um, that doesn't really play out in the research literature. You've devoted a great deal of time and energy to the mental health and wellness of college students. College is, is supposed to be a fun time in life. My oldest daughter is a sophomore right now, and she's having her living her best life. Uh, but you know, what are college students most stressed about these days? Well, honestly, it doesn't seem to be just one thing. Uh, there is that idea that college is supposed to be fun, and sometimes students arrive with that assumption. And then they get there and when they don't feel good, it can almost feel worse. Okay, everybody else is having fun. I'm supposed to be happy. This is supposed to be the best time. And instead I feel stressed. The types of things that we hear from college students these days are that they feel under pressure. They feel overwhelmed. There's sometimes a difficulty adjusting to a new environment. Um, some people say that they're nervous to speak to new people, nervous to socialize. And then we do know that many college students are impacted by financial difficulties, which of course is extremely stressful, paying for college perhaps by while also working one or two jobs. People are impacted by racism on college campus and people are impacted by sexual violence on college campuses. So for any one student, it might be one of these stressors or it might be a combination. And are there factors or is there sort of a, a profile that can help us predict which students are going to be more likely to be challenged by anxiety and stress? Well, there are some risk factors. If people have suffered from mental health difficulties in the past, it's more likely that those are going to persist in college. And if people have lower levels of social support, they tend to have higher levels of stress. And, um, if people have experienced some difficulties earlier in life, adverse childhood experiences, like being in a home that wasn't safe, they might struggle more as they're still recovering from that experience. And I can understand first-year students stress being away from home. Uh, for many of them, it could be the first time they've gone away other than maybe summer camp. But does anxiety tend to lessen as students are in school longer, or does that stress remain or build throughout the entire time in college for some students? That's a great question. And unfortunately, I don't have the evidence for it. So there isn't in general, you know, a major decrease in stress or anxiety after students have been in college longer. And perhaps that's because there are different sources of stress and anxiety. For instance, it could be that when students arrive at college, the adjustment and learning how to cope with a new environment is most prominent. But then there's a different kind of stress as students get ready to graduate and face the world and try to discern their place in it. How are they going to make money? How are they going to survive? Where are they going to live? What comes next? And those types of anxieties can also affect students. 
And how much do unrealistic expectations play into students' stress? And for instance, coming to a large university as a valedictorian of a very small high school, and then suddenly realizing that they're up against competition they've never seen before. It's so hard for students in that situation, which honestly is true for a lot of students going to college because many of the students entering college had considerable success in their home environments. And this reflects the idea of self-esteem versus self-compassion. So self-esteem is evaluating yourself in terms of how good you are, how, how much do you stack up uh, and against other people. So it's comparing yourself to other people. And even though it can sort of lift people up a little bit, it's a problematic way to, um, it's a problematic foundation for self-esteem, for self-worth, because it's unstable. So if your self-esteem is built upon being, you know, getting better grades than the students around you, and then you shift to environment where that's not the case anymore, then suddenly students can feel really bad about themselves. <clears throat> so instead, it's a really uh, resilient practice to develop a view of yourself and how you treat yourself that isn't based on comparing yourself to other people, but that can take some time and effort. So I know we've been talking about college students and we'll, we'll go on for a little bit more, but you know, things have changed since I was in college. I don't, I don't want to date myself too much, but George H.W. Bush was president when I started college. You know, I took Psych 101 as a freshman, and that was the extent of my psychology career as a clinician, if you will. Given the way the world is now, especially in a post-COVID world, and you can't Google mental health without seeing three out of five articles talking about children and teen mental health and stress, should this be something that's brought into curriculums earlier, whether it be high school or even elementary school, just in terms of self-awareness, uh, stress, trauma, things like that, just to be more self-aware and maybe help start coping at a certain age? Absolutely. And now we have wonderful evidence about social-emotional learning programs for elementary students, middle school students, high school students. There are fabulous programs that have been shown to reduce levels of stress, enhance students' resilience, and help protect them against anxiety and depress depression. And so we know that these kinds of programs work. The challenge is that they have, there's a lot of variety in terms of integrating them into the curricula. And even for college students, there are universal programs on some college campuses, classes, and otherwise that we know can help decrease mental health issues on campus. So I think it's a little bit of a paradigm shift to think about these skills, not as extra not as things that are only for students who are struggling. But, you know, we have other subjects in school that we require some degree of awareness and competence for. And I actually think that for every high school student, knowing the answer to the question, for example, what are three ways to treat depression effectively that have scientific research evidence behind them? Why doesn't every high school student know the answer to that question. I think that would be marvelous. And I think students can sniff out things that are optional. When you make something optional or an elective or, you know, a college counseling center that, you know, students can go to if they want to, but uh, um, you're really sending a message that this is something extra just for those weird students that need it. Whereas if you put it into the curriculum, and especially if you assign it a grade, you're sending the message that this information is for everybody. This is basic. 
as I think about it while you're talking, um, I'm an adjunct professor at my beloved alma mater, Syracuse University. And obviously during COVID, we were teaching remotely. Our classes were remote. And different rules were coming down from the administration in terms of how to, to cope, not cope, but cope with the situation and to help students get reacclimated and readjusted to going back in the classroom. And one of the things we had to adhere by was if somebody says, hey, professor, I need a mental health day, you couldn't knock them for not being in class or participating. And so I think, you know, COVID certainly has put a, a positive spotlight on the mental health um, crisis we're facing right now. Obviously, that's caused a major part of our crisis. So I guess it's just much more prevalent now and much more people are aware of it. And it's much more of an open conversation dialogue versus, you know, what I reference is, you know, oh, cousin Jimmy Thanksgiving, he's going to be over there and we don't want to really talk about what's going on with him. How much do unrealistic expectations play in a student's stress? Oh, I answered that question. Sorry about that. You got me wrapped up in the other ones. Yeah. There's a perception that today's college students are more willing than ever to express their concerns about their own mental health and to seek treatment. In your experience, is that an accurate perception? Well, it is accurate in terms of the numbers of students who are seeking support service, seeking mental health services. So that has increased. And that could be both good and bad, honestly, because it could reflect a greater willingness to acknowledge difficulties, less stigma, but it can also reflect this increase in mental health problems. So that's very difficult. And it really depends on the person. So for instance, people who go to college counseling centers are mostly women. And um, we know from the data that Students um, in different minority groups are less likely to feel like their mental health is being supported on campus. And for some people, it's not culturally congruent to go to a counselor or a therapist that isn't a part of sort of their family history or uh, their cultural background. So we're in this sort of strange situation where the demand for counseling at college counseling centers exceeds the supply. So people can't get appointments with counselors when they need them. And um, there are long wait lists. Sometimes it's just fully booked. And then on the other hand, there's a big chunk of students who would never go to the counseling center, even if they're struggling. So we have to find some other way to reach those students. You've described the, the relationship between college health centers and students as a paradox. What do you mean by that? Right. So on the one hand, these college counseling centers are booked and it can be really tempting that uh, the answer would be, well, hire more counselors. We just need to meet the demand. And that could be one way to help address the problem. But on the other hand, you have all of these students, um, especially students who are men, students from cultures that, you know, where therapy isn't something you talk about openly, who aren't going to go to the counseling center. And I've really enjoyed teaching mental health skills in the context of a graded academic course because it provides this other avenue for students to build their mental health skills outside of the the college counseling center. And it's destigmatizing because you're not, you know, saying, oh, I have a terrible mental health problem if you enroll in one of my, you know, um, science and practice psychology courses. So I I feel that I'm reaching a different slice of the student population. And honestly, most of the students in my classes do describe some sort of internal struggles. It might not rise to the level of uh, very severe anxiety or depression, 
but almost all of my students indicate that they have the habit of self-criticism, being mean to themselves, which is a transdiagnostic risk factor, meaning that it's a risk factor for many different kinds of mental health issues, including anxiety, depression. You've mentioned supply and demand a couple of times, and so you've got me putting my economist hat on. Yeah. One would think that when there's increased demand and less supply, that more people would be moving into to help offset that increased demand. But the profession, the mental health profession, behavioral health space doesn't seem to be trending that direction, does it? Well, I mean, it's an issue if we're talking about college campuses versus uh, the system in general. And there are some barriers. We don't have enough providers in general. The process to become a provider is difficult and long, and maybe it should be because we want to provide quality care to people. But I was just at a conference last week at the University of Michigan called Depression on College Campuses. And I really appreciated that one of the presenters said, you know, we act as though this problem is unsolvable but it is solvable. There are creative ways that we can make sure that everybody's mental health needs are being addressed. And one feature is it just might look differently. Instead of having an individual therapist for every person, we could expand access to skills training programs, um, mental health courses, especially for grades or college credits that would incentivize participation and allow more students to be served at once. You mentioned earlier that more female students seek help versus male students. Assuming that an equal number of males, if not more, also need mental health services, what's it going to take to balance out those numbers between the genders? Well, I think it will um, necessitate a shift of how we conceptualize masculinity. So there's this idea of toxic masculinity, which Kind of sounds like a mean word. I, I don't toxic sounds like it's awful or poison. And I don't think that's the case. I think that um so we've socialized men in this culture that they can be angry or they can not be angry. Um, but that's kind of the only strong negative emotion they're allowed to have. And I really appreciated that some writers have started to call this constricted masculinity rather than uh, toxic masculinity, because it really is more of a constriction. So instead, we need to have emotion socialization for people of all gender identities that allows them to have a full range of emotional experiences, sadness, frustration, uh, disappointment. Um, all of these kinds of emotions are normal parts of being human. But when we teach one you know, prominent gender group that they're not allowed to have those feelings, we've got a big problem because then when they do, they feel alone, ashamed, embarrassed, and might not really want to admit it to anybody. I know you like to have data to support your answers. Yes. <laughs> but I'd like your personal opinion, if it's okay, mm -hmm. just sticking with the male students and the male population. Do you think it's it's beneficial for them now that we're seeing more professional athletes, male athletes come out and openly discuss mental health struggles they've had. You've got Michael Hel Michael Phelps, the Olympian. You've mm -hmm. got Kevin Love from the Cleveland Cavaliers. You've got Darius Leonard from uh, the Indianapolis Colts. The list goes on and on. You know, and I've been trying to get Jim Ursay, who's the owner of the Colts on the show for two years, 
because he started a campaign called Kicking the Stigma. And so he and Darius Leonard, their star linebacker, are trying out there to kick the stigma of mental health and right going on. out there in the communities. And so do you think having some, I'll just say, male role models like that is helping to reduce that stigma and help sort of soften that lack of education, I guess, in terms of, you know, it's okay to be not okay? I certainly hope so. And I think that these athlete role models can play a huge role. In fact, the first time that I taught a mental health skills-based class at Seattle University was in a summer session. And I came to class ready to teach some mental health skills. And I didn't know who my students would be. They were almost all basketball players. I don't really know if they wanted to be in my class. I think they just, you know, there weren't that many classes going on in the summer. They had to be enrolled in a class. So suddenly I had these basketball players. And as, as I said before, I don't know much about basketball. So I was, okay, I better go learn about basketball. And it turned out to be a fantastic match because there's some really good data on building mental health skills and athletes. And like you said, they're these fantastic role models. So, you know, after kind of an awkward first day where I was trying to explain how these skills would be applicable, I came back the next day and I showed a clip of LeBron James meditating. And I heard from the back, you know, now we're talking. <laughs> like, okay, okay, this is, I'm clicking now. And one fantastic thing about athletes is that they understand the value of repeated practice. So I said to my, um, my student athletes, the basketball players, you know, all right, I don't know anything about basketball. I haven't really played much before. How many times would I have to practice shooting a basket for, you know, to be pretty good at it, to be okay, you know, like 10 times, a hundred times. And they laughed at me, you know, because no, it's more like a thousand, 10,000 times. And I'm like, okay, well, you're used to thinking one way in your mind. You've developed that in over years, maybe decades. And now I'm going to ask you to think in some new ways to try out some new mental skills. And just like shooting hoops, we're going to practice them over and over again. And we're not going to expect them to be easy right away or to work right away. It's going to be like practice. And it was so great. They, they knew what I was talking about. And sometimes I had that same response from veterans. Veterans know the value of, of working hard and not expecting easy results right away. But I don't think outside of athletes and veterans, maybe other students sometimes have learned to follow what comes easily to them and to distrust what seems hard or difficult. And it takes a little bit of work to convince them that just because a new skill, a new mental health or behavioral skill doesn't work the first time or seems kind of weird, that doesn't mean it won't benefit you. Just like if you went to the gym and you had first workout, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be easier to like, you know, produce big muscles instantaneously. You're clearly a pro now basketball, but you just said shooting hoops as opposed to shooting baskets or practicing. So you, you did your homework. Okay. <laughs> I'm working on it. We'll give you an A on that one. <laughs> So given all the facts you mentioned before about college students, what should parents look for and consider in terms of mental health support for their child as they are choosing a college or university? Well, that's a fascinating question. I think I would want to ask to what degree is mental health part of the whole campus culture rather than this extra thing that troubled students can go seek out? And right now there's this emphasis on some college campuses, for instance, Georgetown, University of Texas at Austin, in promoting well-being throughout the institution. 
And that means even within the context of an academic class. That doesn't mean that a math class has to be all about feelings or anything like that. But there's a wonderful example of a computer science professor who found that students were dropping the class and he was trying to figure out, um, well, what could he do to help students stay in the class? And he actually restructured the curriculum to promote this growth mindset idea that, okay, when something didn't work out, you're going to try this thing over here, step one. You're going to try another idea, step two, a third idea, step three. You're not going to give up. You're going to try the problem from these other perspectives. And he found that that approach kept students in the class. There were fewer dropouts. So he didn't make it all about feelings or anything, but he um, thought of that well-being component. You know, students were getting discouraged. How could he prevent students from getting discouraged? And that's just one example about how throughout an institution, students can be encouraged to build not only their academic skills, but also these metacognitive skills. How am I thinking? And, you know, am I getting upset with myself? What other ways could I go about, you know, um, uh, directing my mind, given that I'm in this, you know, challenging academic environment? One other thing that I'd ask parents to consider is what is the mental health plan after dark and on the weekends? So right now, um, one really interesting part of this conference I attended had to do with digital mental health on campus. So in this digital or hybrid world, what are some of the ways that students are accessing mental health? And it turns out they're doing it a lot online. Now, there are a lot of different mental health apps and products and services, and that makes it really challenging because some of them are going to be cheap, some of them are going to be high quality, and some of them will be cheap and low quality, but it makes it really hard and challenging for an institution when they're approached by these different vendors saying, okay, I have this really, your students are struggling, there aren't enough counselors, you know, buy this digital mental health product that we have and um, use it for your students because it's really great. And these are really skilled salespeople and administrators and others could be easily swayed. And it was really helpful that uh, the speakers at this conference said, no, your institution needs a digital mental health strategy, a process for vetting to make sure that these products are high quality, that they're appropriate. And so you might kind of want to know what products they're using. And then um, I appreciated that uh, some institutions have their own programs. So instead of just shutting down at 5 p.m. and saying, well, now students can access mental health through this third-party vendor. We don't really know what they're doing with the data. You know, we're not really sure about the confidentiality or the quality, but good luck with all that. Instead, some institutions are saying, no, we're going to have a different team that knows this institution and our students that's available in the evenings and on the weekends. And you could see how that could be a much better model. We've been talking to Dr. Rachel Turo, and we'll be right back after a short break. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The White House doctor makes house calls. 
Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Turo. Dr. Turo worked as a supervising psychologist and research scientist at Rush University Medical Center after a decade of research and clinical practice centered around the question, what helps people recover from stress and trauma? Dr. Turo's current work addresses how best to help everyone cultivate strategies to manage stress and build new coping and resilience skills. Before we start the second half, I just want to give you a complete shout out because you are the first time any guest has danced both in the intro to start the show and the second half. So you are hands down the winner right now. So, so thank you. Congratulations. A coffee mug's coming your way. Woohoo! <laughs> really appreciate that. That's exciting. You mentioned earlier your work with veterans. You spent a year working with military veterans who experienced mental trauma. What did you learn during that year about the military culture and about the type of traumas that are specific to the men and women who served their country to defend our freedom? Well, I learned a lot from veterans and it's a more diverse population than I expected. People with different political viewpoints and different kinds of challenges. One thing that I really appreciated and respected was a kind of discipline that many of them took away from military service. They were aware of the benefit of hard work and they all had a sense of personal responsibility. And many of them knew that There were mental health challenges. They'd been through some very difficult circumstances, whether that was in combat or in terms of sexual violence or just other issues in life. And when I shared different avenues for recovery, I like to offer choices and explain, well, you know, there's more than one established way, scientifically supported way to feel better. So, you know, which one of these paths sounds right for you? And once I did that, I found veterans often willing to do the work, to actually commit. 
And sometimes it was weird because one aspect about military culture that I think is challenging is this idea that sometimes you maybe should compartmentalize your emotions, right? If you're in touch with your feelings all the time, maybe it's harder to just focus on getting the mission done. But then once you're a civilian, after your service is over, if you keep compartmentalizing and not accessing your feelings, it could be really tough to build intimacy in your relationships or to learn how to allow some of your feelings to be present. So that um, that shift or different way of being with your feelings, I think, was uh, one of the challenges, one of the um, main themes that came up in my service with military veterans. There's long been a movement to divide mental health issues into two categories, those with serious conditions and what's often called the walking worried. First off, does the term walking worried unfairly diminish the challenges those people are facing or do they need to, as the saying goes, you know, just buck up and toughen up? I don't think that I would divide people this way. It's true that some serious and persistent mental health challenges require a whole other level of expertise and treatment. We need residential care for some folks, and sometimes we need 24-7 crisis responses if people are at risk for harming themselves or others. So all of those types of services are essential. However, I think that sometimes we make these divisions in ways that don't make sense. Like you'll hear the idea of clinical depression as opposed to what, you know, medium depression, moderate depression. Uh, Psychologists don't really use the term clinical depression because we take all levels of depression seriously. And we know that something that starts as a little depression can turn into a larger amount of depression. So instead, I would think of these things more like uh, cholesterol, right? Like if you have low cholesterol, great. If you have staggeringly high levels of cholesterol, like that's a huge problem. But if you have, you know, moderately high cholesterol, we, we want to really pay attention to that. So um, I think that everybody can benefit from cultivating well-being, and I'd really like to make that more universal than our current system, which, you know, even though most people have some sort of mental health concern, we still treat it as though it's a weird thing, an unusual thing rather than the norm. America is a tremendous country, but we do have limited resources. And we've definitely seen that when it comes to the mental health funding. Should we devote more resources to heading off the issues of, again, the walking worried before those problems become worse? Or do we need to save our limited resources for those who have truly severe mental health issues? That's a good question, but I don't think it has to be an either or. Let's do both and. Prevention is awesome. So prevention doesn't need to be high cost. And we know from these programs in uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, colleges and universities that prevention is fabulous. And it winds up being cheaper than treating the problems down the road. So um, I would say we want to put a lot of resources into prevention and we can get a lot of bang for our buck that way. But because life is how it is, because brains are how they are, we are going always to have some level of severe mental health issues. So we have to prepare for those as well. President Biden highlighted mental health crisis during a State of the Union address, and you couldn't turn on any news outlet today without seeing the cast from Ted Lasso at the White House yesterday, again, putting spotlight Mm -hmm. on mental health, which I can't wait to see season three. I haven't turned it on yet. 
Me too. And then we know with Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania admitting himself, mm-hmm. that's completely changing the landscape in terms of the conversations we're having at the highest level of government in the land. And my hope is, to your point a moment ago, because folks like the State of Union Address and President Biden, because again, another, I'll say a role model or, or someone in the spotlight with Ted Lasso cast, another figure with Senator Fetterman, policy will change, funding will change. You know, we, we know there's been additional resources for HHS, you know, in the State of the Union. So yes, things cost money. Yes, where does that money come from? Taxpayer dollars. But in the long run, if you're able to treat something today, it's going to be much more beneficial and more cost-effective versus letting a lingering problem go on for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And so I'm fully on board with you. I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we will see a policy change because it's so much more in the spotlight, again, at the highest levels. And it took us off I a tangent so there. Too. Sorry about that. No, not at all. I saw statistics, statistics lately that says about 70% of American adults have experienced some type of traumatic event and 34.8 million children nearly half of all American children are exposed to adverse childhood experiences that can severely harm their future health and well-being. Certainly seven out of 10 adults aren't suffering from post-traumatic stress in this country, are they? I think so. I think they are. And I also think that um, we've done a disservice to people by using the term disorder. PTSD, we use it to separate, you know, these people no PTSD, these people, PTSD, but in reality, it's continuous. Again, it's like cholesterol. So um, yes, I think most people in America are now traumatized. We just went through this horrifying traumatic event in COVID-19 and plus there are many other types of stressors that people experience. So we have to stop treating this like it's the exception, like it's weird to have mental health difficulties and instead treat it like, you know, we're all going to be exposed to challenges and suffering as humans. And this is a central part of what makes us human. It's just a normal part of life. We want to reduce trauma exposure. Certainly we'd like to do that. We can't always do that. Like in the case of COVID-19, we couldn't just erase it or not have it. Um, But I think that there's still a lot of stigma. We still have this model that mental health problems are weird or extra instead of normal human events. Prior to COVID, about a year or so, I was at an event where there was a Medal of Honor recipient as the keynote speaker, and he was talking about his post-traumatic stress. And he said, you have to drop the D. It's not a disorder. Yes. And if a Medal of Honor recipient is going to tell me that, I'm on board. And so through my veteran work in the mental health space, I had dropped the D for a number of years. And now most recently, I heard somebody call it a post-traumatic stress injury. And then I have another guest coming on who's in the first responder mental health space, and she's calling it post-traumatic growth. And so they all have different interpretations is my assumption. Again, I took Psych 101 as a freshman, and that's the extent of my my training. Um, Any thoughts on that in terms of how we're viewing it, assessing and addressing the the nomenclature again, from my perspective, with a focus on stigma and reducing stigma? Yes, there is a movement to uh, that to be non-pathologizing, to stop pathologizing folks with mental health struggles as though there's something wrong with them. I drop the D as well. I usually call it post-traumatic stress, but that can make it hard to Google since I write articles <laughs> about it, right? If people um, Google PTSD. So that's really a challenge. And for the scientific community, sometimes you can't get published or funded if you don't use the same term as everybody else. 
It is so tough because these things become traditions. Veterans get compensated if they meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So they have a motivation to have the D and to fit those criteria, even if, you know, then you wind up being paid for being sick. So we have so many issues with this and it's not just PTS, you know, quotation marks D. We talk about depressive disorders and anxiety disorders with post-traumatic stress. Another way you could think of it as learning. Our brains learn from experience. So you don't have post-traumatic stress. You have post-traumatic learning because you've learned that the world is dangerous and unsafe and that you need to be watchful and on guard and that things might go wrong. That's actually a brain that is functional rather than dysfunctional. You've learned from the environment. Um, you've adapted to what you've been through. So uh, post-traumatic growth is different. Post-traumatic growth does not reflect the same um, symptoms or difficulties as post-traumatic stress. I should say too, with post-traumatic stress, there's a lot of different ways to experience it. So somebody who was in an unsafe environment growing up might have a different um, experience or set of symptoms than somebody who had, you know, one violent experience or a natural disaster as an adult. And it doesn't mean that one is more or less valid than another. There's just a lot of diversity of stressful or traumatic experiences. Post-traumatic growth refers to this idea of um, developing in some way as a human in the aftermath of trauma that could be spiritual growth or clarifying your values. And so some people, um, for instance, after going through cancer, might find that they value things differently and that they've you know, grown spiritually in some way, even though they also suffered. And one thing that's really odd is that um, higher levels of post-traumatic stress correspond to more post-traumatic growth. I mean, that kind of makes sense because if like an experience really doesn't affect you at all, it's like, oh no, no big deal. You're not really going to grow in the same way going through something really helps you grow. So I don't mean to glorify mental health struggles, but I, I also think there's many different kinds of depression and some kinds of depression might reflect sorting something out or growing in some way or shifting your thinking where some is kind of more like just getting stuck. Um, so um, I, I really have a lot of problems with this idea of disorder. One, we're stuck from the drug companies and from prescriptions. We're stuck in terms of the legal system, right? If you don't have a disorder, then how can you sue for damages? And so we're stuck in a lot of these ways that don't reflect the state of the science. To your point a moment ago about depression, do we tend to be too hard on ourselves and perhaps harder on ourselves than we are in friends and family? And could that be contributing rise to our depression and anxiety? Absolutely. It is very common for people to have the habit of being mean to themselves. Self-criticism is a really powerful habit. It is so common. My students talk about it all the time. They're so mean to themselves. And it's like smoking because once it gets started, it's hard to stop. And in fact, the research shows that the habit, just the tendency to just do it over and over again automatically is just as powerful in terms of its effect on mental health difficulties as the um, content itself, the what of why you're criticizing yourself. And people think this is benign. They think it's no big deal. They think it's even helpful or motivating to be a drill sergeant and that it will help them achieve great things if they're super mean to themselves. Research shows the opposite. It brings you down. It makes you depressed. It makes you anxious. 
It's associated with less motivation, more procrastination. So actually changing the way you treat yourself and being kind and encouraging is associated with much better mental health and achievement. But I have to convince people of that. I have to show them the research because people are attached to their self-criticism. They often think that that is just part of who they are, like their height or their eye color. But the evidence shows it's a risk factor for mental health problems to be self-critical and that it can be changed. That's a perfect segue. This brings us to your most recent book titled The Self-Talk Workout, Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. Please share a few tips on how to quiet those self-critical voices in our heads. One tip that I like is to practice spotting your successes. So a lot of people like to keep a to-do list, and I encourage people to keep a done list. So write down 10 things each day that actions you've taken to contribute to your life or somebody else's life or the world that you have accomplished. And that might seem sort of weird or corny at first to acknowledge things that you think are basic or no big deal. But my students tell me that it makes a difference, that it sort of balances out this idea that I haven't done enough, I'm not accomplishing enough to write down, um, no, I worked for an hour on this, I um, emailed my professor, I submitted that assignment, um, I made myself lunch, I connected with a friend. The catch is that no item is too small. And this isn't a exercise to evaluate yourself. It's an appreciation exercise. So that is one strategy. There are also two very helpful strategies for decreasing self-criticism, mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And those are a bit, uh, they take a little bit more effort to implement and they can be kind of strange to people at first, but they have very strongly well-established research um, research-backed benefits. So we have good evidence that mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation help reduce self-criticism and therefore benefit mental health. And that the mechanism isn't clearing your mind, it's changing how you treat yourself inside your mind. Are we seeing a trend post-COVID in terms of people being more mindful and just taking steps to, to take a moment? And I ask because as my listeners know, I'm a huge Apple junkie and I have to have the newest Apple watch. And it tells me multiple times a day to, to breathe or to take a mindful moment. Have you seen an uptick in terms of people just focusing more on themselves, whether it be through meditation or just, again, stopping for an hour and, and taking a breath for two minutes? I have no idea if people are doing this more. Certainly the idea is out there. We hear about it. I don't know. Do you like it when your watch tells you to do that? And do you do it? It depends. It's always going to be, you know, whether I'm in the middle of a meeting or a conversation or a negotiation, or if I'm just sitting doing some research, whether it's sort of like the timing of it. And so I like it how it in, in the fact that it reminds you to do it. Um, right. But again, like most things in life, it's all about timing. So it's like, oh, let me hit snooze. I'll do it in yeah. 20 minutes when I'm done. Right, right. And then hit snooze, snooze, snooze four times. And I don't do it. Yeah. Um, it's something I've tried to be, again, to use your word, more mindful of. Right. Um, but I, I just, you know, I just see more and more technology getting involved, as you mentioned earlier, with all the different apps that are out there, um, focusing more on just personal well-being. And so I encourage myself, but also everybody out there, just to take five minutes a day. It doesn't have to be all at once. Take a deep breath, stand up, stretch your legs, clear your head, something, just to kind of get the noise and the clutter out of, of, of the world away from you. 
a lot of people do report benefit from doing those kinds of practices. And people like some of the apps like Calm or Headspace. And that's fabulous. I absolutely want people to feel supported by whatever practices are right for them. I will say that in terms of the research evidence, formal practice tends to be very helpful. So if we think of formal practices, okay, these are the five minutes a day I'm absolutely dedicated to practicing mindfulness meditation or a self-compassion practice like loving kindness meditation. And again, you know, to go back to a kind of gym example, you know, if you do a sit up every now and again, when you think of it, great, that's probably better than not doing any sit ups. But if you really want to develop your abdominal muscles, it's probably better to have a specific routine targeting those abs. And you do, you know, several reps in a row. Like six minute abs. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Probably better than, you know, six second abs. Exactly. Your first book, Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD, Practices for Recovery and Resilience, has been praised for combining your deep understanding of mindfulness practice with extensive knowledge of what research has taught us about the consequences of trauma. It was also praised for benefiting not only clinicians working with trauma survivors, but also trauma survivors themselves. How are you able to strike that balance where highly skilled clinicians gain knowledge yet the words are still accessible to lay people like myself. Well, Chris, I guess like anything else, I mean, just practice. And honestly, I don't think I did it perfectly. And that's all right. Um, I wrote for scientific professional audiences for 20 years. And then when I made this shift to try to reach a more general, broader audience, I'm not sure if I always succeeded at first. So, uh, you know, I tried my best to strike a balance and not use so much jargon, but I still really have this nerdy part of me that I never wanted to say anything. I couldn't back up with the research evidence in case, you know, my fellow academics could come after me or, you know, they wouldn't do that anyway. So that was a baseless fear. And then I just think I've taken it even further. So over the past year, I've written a lot of, um, you know, columns for general audiences. I have a Psychology Today blog. And in this most recent book, The Self-Talk Workout, I think it's even um, maybe even a little bit more geared towards a lay person than a therapist. Although because self-criticism is such a prevalent feature among people who have any type of mental health concern, um, I certainly hope that a lot of therapists will like The Self-Talk Workout as well. I mentioned that we were going to be talking about coping skills and the fact that you've been working on creating new coping and resilient skills. What were some of the age-old coping and resilient skills, good and bad? Uh, well, there's lots of uh, coping skills that aren't so healthy, right? So, um, you know, drinking and using drugs is a really popular way to cope with difficult feelings. And even though in the short term, it can sometimes make people feel better, there are lots of long-term drawbacks. Um, the same is true with restricting eating, right? Or eating disorders. Some people use that to cope with difficult feelings. And then kind of in the middle, um, distraction is a really great coping skill. So if something is difficult for you in your life, maybe, you know, binge watching a show uh, on Netflix or otherwise would be a great way to cope. And it's not a great long-term strategy, but I will always recommend that a student in distress, you know, use shows or TV as a coping strategy rather than harming themselves or using drugs or alcohol, go ahead. However, you just don't want that to be the only skill in your repertoire. So then getting more advanced to skills that really do help um, socializing. I encourage people, you want to reach out to your friends and family. Why don't you know, 
doesn't really take a long time to send a text. But when you're feeling down and discouraged, it's just really hard to reach out. And I know, I mean, I love it when friends text me, but you know, we got to text them too. So send those texts, maintain and nourish those relationships. Social support is huge. Physical exercise, so great for mental health. It doesn't even matter what the mental health issue is. Physical exercise helps. And then uh, we know that mindfulness meditation and self-compassion work also are incredibly beneficial for mental health. They're not a sponsor, but I have to promote them anyway. Binge watch Ted Lasso. That'll help you through a lot of different things. (laughs) Yes, agreed. We have just a few minutes left. What gives you the most optimism today about mental health and wellness? I appreciate the, um, the choices that are available right now. I'm thrilled that a lot of people are paying attention to mental health and wellness. There seems to be this recognition that this is an issue, not just for some people, but for the majority of people. And I think that we're in a period of a lot of creativity in terms of how do we approach this? Do we embed mental health within primary care? You probably have your primary care doctor, you know, asking about your anxiety or depression. Fabulous. That takes it out of the specialty appointment and just into just regular being a human care. So I think we're going to continue to see a lot of different creative approaches, but we're probably going to have, um, you know, a few more years at least, maybe another decade or two in terms of reorganizing. What is our strategy going to be? Is it going to be more prevention? Will it be more widespread? How much of it will be digital? And, you know, which digital tools are the best tools to use? So I don't really know the answers to all of this, but I'm glad that we're in this period of exploration and figuring it out. Dr. Rachel Turo, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure. No, the pleasure was mine. And a special thank you, as always, to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.